This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorn and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorn. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. This week, we have a special returning guest, my good friend, Dr. Joel Evans, who's a board-certified OBGYN in Connecticut, a functional medicine doctor, an educator, and he's a member of the board of directors for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine that's doing amazing work around the world. Welcome back to the show, Joel. Great to be here, Dr. Roundtree. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing really well. I am. Thank you so much. Great. So, Joel, this week we're going to zoom in on a particular aspect of health that affects the entire body and the entire population of the world, but it affects everybody in different ways. We're going to talk about this magic word stress and levels of stress and what that means exactly. So maybe we can just start by defining what that means. What is what is stress? What does it mean to you? What's your perspective? And what does it mean from a medical perspective? You know, that is such an incredible question because we always talk about stress and we don't know how to define it. So basically, there's emotional stress and there's physical stress. So physical stress on the body is anything that will cause the body to go out of its state of equilibrium, anything that will cause the body to create a compensatory physiological response. Like if you're in the cold, right, your body has to compensate. So it's that compensation that can be a stressor on the body. Now, we may look at the latest science and say, wow, I thought that being in the cold is a good thing. And the answer is, it is a good thing because the response of the body to being in the cold is actually a very good thing, except when you're in the cold for too long. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then it becomes problematic. And that's that is actually the same way to look at emotional stress. So emotional stress is something that upsets us, real or imagined. So if we are afraid of flying and we sit in our living room and I say close your eyes and imagine yourself getting on a plane, you'll have that same stress response as if you were getting on a plane in the physical sense, right? So whether it's real of getting on the plane or imaginary getting on the plane. So stressors, real or imagined, affect the body in the same way. And conversely, positive thoughts. So imagining you're being with someone that you love, a child, a romantic partner, causes the body to reduce the, to produce those same molecules of emotion that affect you positively, whether you're with that person or not. So stress, real or imagined, is the same in terms of your body's response. And positive emotions, real or imagined, are just like cold, where those reactions 
on the short term are good because that's what we call fight or flight, where you are running from an enemy or you're going to fight an enemy. You need those stress hormones. You need your body to go through that stress response, but it's the prolonged stress response, which is a problem. Now, I think I hear you saying it isn't accurate to say there's a negative stress and a positive stress. What's accurate to say is that there's a negative response to stress and a positive response to stress. Am I, am I getting that right? That there's no true like negative stress because if you said, well, cold is a stressor, that's, you know, really not the issue. It's more like how long are you in it and how do you perceive it? Exactly. And it's both. It's how long you're in it and how, how you perceive it. So you can take the same stressor. I use this example all the time with my patients. Picture two five-year-olds on the beach, a wave comes in and they're both knocked down. One of them gets up laughing and screaming and wants to run back into the water and can't wait for the next wave. The other gets up crying and runs away from the wave. It's the same experience, but a totally different reaction. And why does that happen? Why do some people, and this starts with little kids, right? That they're, yeah, yeah. Some kids that seem to have that built in. I, I remember an old study where they would have somebody in a clown suit walk in a preschool and uh, some of the kids would run towards the clown and other would run away from the clown. What What's going on there? Similar, similar. Yeah. So we don't have all the answers, but, you know, as an obstetrician, one of the places I go when I'm thinking about early childhood behavior is what we call prenatal programming or what was that child's experience both in the womb as well as extreme early life. And, you know, there's a whole field there called prenatal psychology, which looks at that. And, and as far as stress goes, there's actually data and studies and science that shows that if you are in utero and your mom is stressed, that that affects the whole programming of your stress response. And that's really, you know, heavy stuff. I actually spoke at the UN on that topic. At the United um, Nations. I did. I did. Yeah. Because they were doing a conference on reducing violence. And someone said, I wonder, you know, if there's anything with pregnant women to reduce violence. And they said, basically, the only one that would know would be me. And they <laughs> called up and I said, yeah, I can answer that. Absolutely. And so I spoke about this prenatal psychology. Birthpsychology.com is the website that has all this association pre and perinatal psychology and health. I happen to be their medical director. So this is something I'm very interested and in. It's close to your heart. Yes. And is this something that you would say most obstetricians are aware of now and are talking to their patients about? Sadly, sadly, no. Sadly, no. Um, I would say that most of the doulas and midwives are aware of this, but not the obstetrician. Oh, so there's a lot of education that needs to be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what about a person who says, well, I'm really sensitive to stress, you know, that, that little things get me revved up, get me upset easily. What does that mean? And, and how do you work with so somebody call, like we, that? So we, I say, so they come and they describe that. I go, so are you telling me you've got a short fuse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so what do you do? Lot, well, so I'm going to tell you something funny about short fuse. 
there's a lot of reasons for this. I just want to speak to a biological cause first, because I, I learned about this and I'm like, wow, this was interesting. And that is um, that it can be caused by a lithium deficiency. Oh, right. Now, most people aren't aware that lithium does anything in the body other than it's used for a medication in bipolar disease. Right. In high doses. Very high doses. Yeah. So what's interesting about lithium is that there's a baseline deficiency of lithium, um, which is a mineral in our soil, just the erosion that's been happening. But lithium has been known to decrease or improve short fuse forever, so much so that that was originally what was the main, not the main, but a, an important ingredient of 7-Up. Oh, the, the soft drink. And that's how it got the name. Seven is the atomic number for lithium. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> so seven up to increase um, your mood. Oh, and they put lithium in it. And they put lithium in it. They don't do that anymore. But that's that's what they did. Just like they don't put cocaine in Coca-Cola. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Medicinal soft drinks yes, back yes. in the day. Wow. But there was something to that. So the form of lithium you can give now as a supplement is called lithium orotate. Yeah. Anyway, I just mentioned that because a lot of people aren't aware of that, right? So it's not always that your mother was stressed when, you're, when you were in utero, right? So what I always do when someone comes in with a short fuse question is I ask every patient, as best you can imagine, what was your mother's life like while she was pregnant with you. Yep. 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 And, you know, I've never gotten ever someone that says, I really don't know. And they're like, oh, it was horrible because, and they go through the reasons or it was fine because, and et cetera. So that's part of this prenatal or perinatal psychology where stress in utero of the mother right, impacts the whole programming of the HPA axis. Yeah. Can you define that HPA? Yeah. Yeah. The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, and then the adrenal, which sits on top of the kidney. And that's where the stress hormones are produced. So when we say it gets reset, it gets reset for a lower threshold, meaning for a given stressor, and we can measure stressors. And you know, you can measure stressors by how hard you hit someone's finger. Or, you know, for a, for a baby that's in utero, they do something called buzzing, where they actually put a vibrational device on the mother's belly and the baby responds oh, to that. By buzz. moving around a certain way. Or... Exactly. And the heart rate changes, the heart rate will go up. The baby that's too sensitized, the heart rate stays up longer. It doesn't go to normal. So you have a reprogramming of your stress response, even while you're in utero, if your mom has been stressed while she's carrying you. And that changes, those changes rather, continue all the way through adult life and contribute to violence and inability to make friends, etc. So that's something. And then there's the, you then jump to adult life. And this is everyone's common observation. 
is that when you're stressed about something, it's very easy to have a short fuse. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, so it's a good thing nobody called me while I was preparing for this podcast, but I'd say, no, 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 don't talk yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, now. Not now, not now, not now. <laughs> now, Joel, what does this do to your body to have this kind of sh- chronic short fuse? What are what are the implications in terms of health issues? Well, it has a negative impact on every area of the body. And Everything. That's the yes, that's the sad part. And, you know, there are different ways that we analyze how stressed people are. We can check the function, as I said, of that adrenal gland that sits on top of the kidneys, which is the main organ for responding to stress. And our adrenal function goes through a continuum where we are over-secreting these stress hormones like cortisol. Cortisol. And like you know, epinephrine and norepinephrine for that fight or flight response where our heart rate goes up and blood pressure goes up, et cetera. So those are good in the short term and then really, really bad. So if you are staying in that stressed response long-term, almost every organ system is negatively impacted. And, you know, I could take you on a tour around what we call the functional medicine matrix and tell you how everything is impacted, you know, by stress from your immune system, your ability to detoxify and get rid of toxins, which I know is something near and dear to your heart. But when people are stressed, they don't clear toxins as well, right? So there's that, but then there's this continuum where if stress goes on for too long, instead of having elevated cortisol, you don't make enough cortisol And when you've been stressed long enough such that you're not making enough cortisol, there's an increase in all-cause mortality. And if you're diagnosed with breast cancer, there's one study that I love to cite. I hate the findings, but with metastatic breast cancer, if your cortisol is low, again, much more likely to die from your breast cancer much quicker. So you start out with overdrive too much, and then the gland will burn out and then you stop producing cortisol and that's even worse. Right. And that's what you're saying it predisposes you to chronic disease. Exactly. But you know, what happens is the high cortisol predisposes you to chronic disease too. Uh-huh. And then you've had that predisposition. And then as it gets lower and lower and lower, that chronic disease that was started by the elevation continues, gets worse and you die. Wow. Now, I imagine this is a scenario you've seen, but I've I've certainly had people in my office that were totally revved up and they're complaining about something that seems stress-related, like they're having chronic migraine headaches or chronic neck tension, or they're, they can't sleep, they're wired, but they're tired, right? And, and I hint that maybe stress plays a role and the person you know, has a short fuse in their response. No, absolutely not. There's no way stress could be involved. Have you ever seen people like this? Oh, that yes. they, they yeah. are exuding stress. Yes, lack of self-awareness, we call it. Yeah, and then you suggest, you you dare to make the suggestion that maybe you need to calm down or do something differently and there's resistance. So do you think people get stuck in a, in a mode where they're either unwilling or afraid to acknowledge that the stress is going on? I think that's certainly one way to look at it. 
So that's absolutely true. And then there are other additional factors, meaning people that are exposed to chronic stress and may not even be totally aware of it, right? So they may have issues in their romantic relationship, issues with it, with children, issues at work, financial pressures, et cetera. They have some awareness of it, but don't realize how it's really impacting them much more than they realize or will care to admit. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is that there may be stressors that they're aware of that can't be changed. You know, we look at social determinants of health. So being, you know, living through the experience of racism, living through poverty, et cetera, you know, trying to sleep when there's gunshots, you know, outside of your bedroom, you know, these are all stressors that can't be changed or very difficult to change. So there's, you know, people in denial, there's people that don't have awareness, and then there's people that have uh, situations that are incredibly stressful that they can't change. However, the silver lining here is that these mind-body interventions work for all three groups, right? And so this way, if you say, well, you know, you have someone who clearly is speaking quickly and clearly has a short fuse and tells you that they're not stressed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure that there's something going on that you'll notice physiologically, either their heart rate's elevated, you know, the respiratory rate is elevated, their blood pressure is elevated. And you say, okay, you say to yourself, I'm not going to challenge them about their short fuse because that went nowhere, but I'm going to tell them that their heart rate's up. And so then I'll say, you know, your heart rate's up. I think one of the ways to reduce this heart rate for you would be a mind-body intervention, right? So you find a way to give the recommendation in a way that they don't feel challenged or defensive, right? This works for things as simple as, um, you know, I'm stressed because I have a presentation, all the way to what's going on in Ukraine, right? You mentioned I'm with Center for Mind-Body Medicine. We just did a major teaching uh, program. We sent um, 15 uh, faculty members to Ukraine and taught 150 mental health practitioners um, in Ukraine how to use these techniques in wartime with their patients. And I led one of those groups virtually you know, last summer just these techniques focusing on your breath and we can go through these in detail if you like but these techniques and there are so many of them really can work no matter what the circumstance you know one thing i i've got to say having listened to our mutual friend james gordon talk about these techniques is i thought it was going to be something really elaborate and then when he explained it i realized it's it's really not complicated at all. It's belly breathing, you know, yes, slow, yes. deep breath, uh, yes, you know, yes. using a mantra, you know, relaxation response. So people sometimes have the idea, oh, I need to do, you know, stress reduction. That's going to be complicated. Right. And it's not complicated. Right. It is so easy. It's so easy. And one of the things that very interested in, as you know, is spirituality. And there's a continuum 
between mind-body and spirituality. So what mind-body does is it gives you techniques to change your physiology. What spirituality does, it gives you a perspective so you become less reactive to those circumstances. And then when you combine your decreased reactivity with the technique, that's the one-two punch to keep your physiology stable. So is it fair to say that you believe the brain can be reprogrammed? Absolutely. And that's what neuroplasticity is all about. Yes. And that's all the science is there. It's never too late. Never. 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 Great. Well, we'll be right back after a short break uh, to answer some questions from our listeners. So hang in there and we'll talk shortly. Did you know that unhealthy lifestyle factors such as lack of sleep, overexposure to the sun, and an unbalanced diet can affect your body at the cellular level, leading to a lower level of NAD+, a crucial component in your cells. When your NAD level drops, it can result in many of the adverse symptoms of aging. Thankfully, nicotinamide riboside, or NR, can lend a helping hand. NR helps your body prevent the effects of early aging by boosting the body's production of NAD+. And because no two individuals are the same, Thorne offers a wide variety of NR-based formulas such as our Advanced Nutrients Multi or Thorne's very own exclusive Niacel NR formulas. See Thorne's whole lineup of NR-based formulas for boosting NAD+, when you visit Thorne.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, why does stress cause weight gain? What a great question. There's a couple of mechanisms for this. The obvious one is stress causes us to eat differently. So they actually had a commission, a study to say that when people are stressed, they eat differently and they eat foods that have more calories. So therefore that contributes to weight gain. And they also eat more processed foods, which have more chemicals in them. And when you have more of these toxic chemicals or preservatives, that will also increase weight gain. So that's the obvious thing is we eat differently. We also eat foods that create inflammation and that causes weight gain. Without looking at what we eat in terms of the physiology of stress, Cortisol, which is the hormone that we produce under under stress, causes us to gain weight around the middle. That's the the main reason for weight gain. And so we can measure this actually. Usually it's best done through saliva with a four-point cortisol curve or an adrenal stress index, adrenal stress profile, where you see where your cortisol is throughout the day. And, you know, sometimes we find cortisol can be very low, which is we talked about that burnout. We can find that cortisol can be elevated. Some people that can't sleep at night, for example, have elevated cortisol in the evenings. And that's almost like a reverse because the cortisol is supposed to be elevated in the morning. So, you know, what we would do for that would be a supplement like phosphatidylserine, um, for example, which uh, can reduce 
cortisol. Well, I think you're you're actually answering the next question, which is what hormone is responsible for stress? Is is it just one? And are there ways to turn it down? So it's pretty much, you know, cortisol and epinephrine and norepinephrine. So I wouldn't say they're responsible for stress. Stress causes them to increase, right? And uh, the hormones don't cause the stress. The stress causes the hormones. You know, the ways to turn it down are primarily, like I just said, with the phosphatidylserine, that's really what you can do in terms of a supplement. Then in terms of lifestyle, it's about normal exercise. It's about sleep. It's about eating in a healthy way because you don't want to have sugar spikes. You don't want to be, you know, too much sugar, too little sugar. Healthy fats, omega-3s, are so important. And then there's, you know, mind-body interventions. And mind-body interventions really make your body less reactive to stress. So when you, let's say, meditate, blood pressure goes down, your heart rate goes down, and chemicals in your body change when you're meditating. And then when you stop meditating, they'll go back to normal. But after you've been meditating for a while, your body's changes persist even when you're not meditating. So those benefits continue even when you're not actually practicing the meditation technique and you will also react in a dec- in a less reactive way. And so that's the benefit of doing these and practicing these techniques long-term. So that segues into the next question. Are there natural foods or medicines? And they say, besides marijuana, foods or medicines that can help reduce stress. And I I think there's maybe uh, opposite to that too, is like, are there things that increase stress? Right. So basically the thing that I'm using, you know, a lot is, you know, CBD, usually in the form of hemp oil that really takes the edge off. Without making people feel stupid or high or anything like that. Yeah. Exactly. And it's legal and all that sort of stuff. So I really love that. That's actually a go-to for me. There are other things like, you know, valerian, for example, and different supplement companies make different blends. But in general, I I think the hemp oil is a nice go-to and seems to work the best in my practice. One thing I would throw in that I've had a lot of experience with is GABA or pharma GABA, which is a natural source of GABA. GABA is the same chemical made in the brain that produces a calming effect. So drugs like thallium bind to the GABA receptor. And I've actually been quite impressed at how taking something like that orally can help a person calm down without making them loopy. Yeah, GABA is great. I'm a big fan of GABA for me. And I don't know if this is true for you, Bob, But the way I decide if I'm going to go to GABA as a first choice or CBD is if someone says they're feeling a bit agitated or anxious. So if they use the word anxiety or agitation, I'll go to the GABA. If they'll just say I'm feeling a little stressed, I'll go to the hemp. But there's also no reason we can't do them together. Well, this person says, I've tried meditation and yoga for stress, but I can't get into it. I have some mobility issues. So what do you tell that person? And I'm trying to meditate, I can't do it. So, um, you know, there's so many different 
types of meditations, right? I think that, you know, when you look at some of these ancient yogic texts, they talk about hundreds of different meditations. Hundreds of techniques, yeah. Hundreds, yes, yes. You know, there's a meditation for when you're in an ox cart, for example. (laughs) You know, there are concentrative meditations, there are active meditations, um, there are awareness meditations. Those are the big three. So um, when you're doing a concentrative meditation, you're trying to concentrate on something. And what that does is it takes your attention away from whatever the troubling thought is. So you can concentrate on staring at a candle. You can concentrate on looking at a photograph of something that has a positive connotation to you. You can concentrate on your breath. You know, you can concentrate on anything and you don't have to sit there for 40 minutes and concentrate, right? You start with just a couple of minutes, right? 60 seconds even to start. Then there's an awareness type of meditation where you're just aware and you say, you know what? I'm on this walk now. I feel the wind on my face. I hear the sounds of the birds. Oh, now I hear a car. So you just have this inner dialogue of everything you're experiencing. And that takes your mind off of your thoughts, of your troubling thoughts. And then there's the active meditation, which is anything that takes your mind off of the passage of time, right? So when I was doing surgery, surgery was a meditation for me. I could just do an operation and then I'd look at the clock and two or three hours had gone by. Oh, wow. Right? Dancing is a meditation. Now for this person that's mobility impaired, clearly they can't be dancing, but maybe they can do drumming, right? Banging on a drum or practicing an instrument. Those can be meditations. Saying a a word, you know, like peace, either silently or out loud. Peace, love, something, you know, that you have meaning to or words that you don't know what they mean. And this comes from different spiritual traditions. Those are called mantras where there are supposed vibrational or energetic properties to saying the word and you don't need to know what the word means. The best example of that is the expression OM, which they do before and after, you know, yoga classes usually. And that supposedly has very healing and therapeutic properties. You know, I had a teacher years ago who was talking about this and said, by way of framing, you all got to breathe right? You got to breathe anyway. So what happens if you just focus on your breath and slow it down and become aware of it? And I I think the point was a lot of times people have the idea, you're telling me I need to meditate. That means I got to get on that Zazen cushion and I've got to sit there for three hours without moving, you know, or somebody's going to wrap me on the back. So they have this idea that it's this kind of structured activity, uh, as opposed to what you're saying, which is there's all kinds of ways that we can do that. And it's more of the state getting into a meditative state. That's the issue, which I think is kind of, I mean, the next question is, are there other ways of reducing stress tips for meditation? Not so dull. I think we've already kind of addressed that is like, well, it doesn't have to be dull. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, it absolutely. Not only it shouldn't be dull, it really shouldn't be dull. 
right? So just like we say with exercise, you need to find something you like or it won't be as effective. The same is true for your mind-body technique. Unless you enjoy it, then there's no reason to do it. So find something that you like. And then just crank up the volume. Do more, find something you like and just do more of it. And I gotta say for me, uh, even though I do a sitting meditation every day, that the, the deep meditation for me is going for a walk in the woods, which I try to do every week. Get out into the deep forest and really breathe in the chemicals from those trees and the mosses and the lichens and all that stuff in the air is like- That's beautiful, that's perfect. Does it for me. So find what you like and tune into that and just do more of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been an amazing discussion. So folks, that's all the time we have for this week. Dr. Joel Evans, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to follow more of your work or specifically if they want to find out more about this mind-body work that you mentioned, how would they do that? Yeah, just just go straight to cmbm.org, Center for Mind-Body Medicine, but it's just the website is cmbm charliemarybravomary.org. You'll find the great work they do there. Terrific. Excellent. As always, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Health. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.